0: Hello everyone, my name is Sergio, better known as Conga Dad, from Cigars Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts. My other co-host's name is Bobby Rosa, better known as Cigar Rican. Today we have a very special episode because it's our first English episode. And with us, we have the great David Blanco, CEO and President of Blanco Cigars Company. This is going to be an amazing interview and we hope you guys enjoy it to the max thank you for being a part of cigar podcast hello everyone my name is sergio welcome to cigar aficionados podcast slash cigars podcast we are so thrilled with our guests tonight um but first before we introduce our special guest um you guys are going to have a blast with this guest and you guys are gonna learn a lot. I wanna to introduce to you guys my co-host, Sigarican. How are you, Cigarican?
1: I'm doing well. How about you, Sergio?
0: I'm doing fine. Um, I am going to go ahead and introduce our special guest. His name is David Blanco. He's the CEO and president of Blanco Cigar Company.
2: David, welcome. How are you? It's a pleasure, Sergio. Thank you for having me. Very kind to have you here and I look forward to uh, speaking with you and Cigar Rican and uh, answering your questions. And hopefully um, your, your listeners can learn a little bit more about our, our company and, and what we do with our cigars.
0: So that, that is the whole purpose. And, you know, we develop an audience that is quite young. Uh, most of them are young professionals who are entering the, the cigar community. Um, we also have a more seasoned uh, audience too within within you know our, our ranges however they love history they love to learn and David uh, you have a lot of, of history right behind not only you as a, as a human being but also as your family your business um, the first the first questions for 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 you for David it would be um, how did you? Or when do you fall in love with cigars? That's you know one question we like to ask, and you can take it from there.
2: Uh, well, it's not going to be your standard answer with a certain date or a certain instance or situation. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar with, with our family and who we are, I'll, I'll have to give you a little background. Uh, we are uh, a Cuban-American. Uh, I am of Cuban-American descent. My family is Cuban. My father and uncles and uh, family before him were, were born in Cuba uh, I am the first one born in the states and I was born in Chicago uh, that being said our family also has a history uh, I am the fifth generation in the tobacco cigar industry but the first born in the United States so giving that that preface uh, cigars and cigar smoke and the aroma have always been around my family and my by growing up. So I had always had the aroma of cigars growing up, either in my house or my family households that I visit. And so it's always been a part of my life. So I, I've kind of grown up in that uh, vein of understanding cigars. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a knife and fork, right? Cigars, Cuban coffee, uh, dominoes. These are all things that have have been a constant and always present in my life. Um, even though I had not been smoking them, of course, when I was very, very young, it was something that was always there. So growing up, it was something that I knew like driving a car that I would do when I get older of age. And I did so at a very young age. Uh, I, I didn't exactly understand a cigar the first time I smoked it because it was like anything else, a learning experience and understanding, and I had very good teachers because they were people who had been smoking and in the, and having a a very vast experience of why things taste a certain way in the tobacco. So it wasn't your, your, your father handing a son uh, his first cigar and saying, here, kid, try this, see what you think. It was more of an, of an experience of now you're of age, here's a cigar, and let us tell you about this. So the education that came along with it I was able to find and appreciate what I was doing in the act of smoking a cigar, what it meant. It was more than just smoking a tobacco product. It was almost a, a rite of passage that you're of age now, and this is what men in the family, A, do, and something that is part of your heritage and a legacy of the family for over 100 years. 1886, our family started growing tobacco so wow so for me it wasn't you know just a (laughs) what was your first cigar and what did you think a little bit different experience but it was at a very young age uh I appreciated it immediately because I was not only given the cigar to smoke and and, you know asked what what do you think of it I was explained uh, it was explained to me what it meant how it was rolled why how we did things how our (laughs) families. Heritage had grown from that and how our family did this back in Cuba for generations and where your grandfather, your great grandfather, what your grandmother's family, all of these things. So to me, the cigar embodied a history of my family or the heritage of my family, a legacy that my father was then passing to me to experience more than just a mere cigar. So, wow. a deeper experience and a deeper meaning than than the question usually implies for somebody. So, I, I'm sorry it was a long way of explaining it, but it was truly a, a, a cathartic experience with regard to an opening of a, a, a rite of passage. And here's what, even if you're not in the business, back then it wasn't an issue of I was going to be in the cigar business. It was an issue of a... Progression in manhood. You know, we don't have quinceañeras as men, right? Exactly. So my <laughs> yeah. quinceañera was here's your cigar, and and let me tell you about what this means to our family. So
0: that is that is wow, that is a very deep answer, and I know our audience will will treasure it because um, you know sometimes we talk about st- about our family history or about things that happen, and we are so short on our answer when we should be looking deeper. Right. And you just gave us an answer just because you also belong to a family, which, um, has, they have been in the history books of tobacco. Like I have read books and I have seen videos and documentaries where your family is mentioned. So, you know, we, you have a big, big history and a big responsibility. Now, David, I wanted to ask you about what moment, uh, define you in in first of all what moment define you as a as a as a person that would be interested in living a legacy right you mentioned the legacy your legacy that you're going to be leaving those who come um, after you and what other moment define you that you said i i get this i get this cigar this cigar history this cigar what my Dad, with my uncle, my great grandfathers, grandfathers used to talk about when you did. You finally say you were mature enough, and you say, "Well, I understand this now."
2: I think it was imparted to me the importance of it, so I understood it as I began to smoke. So it was part of the growing up process. Like I said, it was immediate in that this is more than a cigar. I'm handing you to smoke, son. Um, but it was part of a legacy and heritage. So. I grew up in, in my age, uh, the mid eighties to, uh, to late 80, to late eighties is when I started smoking cigars before it was a fad, uh, for younger generations to smoke cigars. So at the time that I began smoking cigars, it was basically, uh, older men, uh, playing dominoes, drinking Cuban coffee in, uh, you know, the, the term they use is wife beaters, right? The tank tops that, yeah. <laughs> that the old men would yeah. <laughs> envision four men, old men, uh, Cuban men, drinking Cuban coffee, smoking cigars and playing dominoes. So this was the what 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 at the time was cigar smokers. It wasn't guys in their 20s, guys in their 30s, guys in their 40s. It, it, what changed was the 90s. OK, so I had been smoking cigars. I'm the only guy my age smoking cigars. My friends think I'm crazy. You know, like, why do you smoke cigars? Only old men smoke cigars, blah, blah, blah. Well, along comes 1992. I use that year because this is the year that Cigar Aficionado came out. That magazine, whether you like it or not, for better or for worse, it presented a lifestyle with cigars to a younger generation. And at that point, it became popular and the yuppies started smoking cigars. And the, uh, you know, the urban professionals with money and they were looking at the magazine for lifestyle and they saw the glitz and the glamour and the, the expensive watches and sports cars and travel and the, and the, and the cigars. Well, the, the, the things that they could obtain relatively easily rel- rather than the $10,000 watch or the G5 was the cigar. And this is how they marketed in that magazine the, the tobacco product as a lifestyle product. So this is what blew up the industry in the, in the early nineties to mid nineties. And of course, suddenly my friends started looking to me going, Hey man, it's cool to smoke. Now what's a good cigar. What's a bad cigar. How do you cut it? How do you light it? I de facto became the subject matter expert on cigars. (laughs) So I, they suddenly turned to me for information, for education, and they suddenly turned to me for cigars. Hey, could we get a cigar from you? You know what a good cigar is. What's a bad cigar? We trust you. What are you smoking? Well, I was smoking cigars that I got from my family that were shipped to me or I obtained. Nothing commercial, right? So I started, I gave a friend a cigar and then another guy said, can I have one? And I was like, sure. And then it became, hey, can I get a bundle? I really like these. And I said, these are, these are my private cigars. This is not, I, I'm, you know, I don't sell cigars. No, no, really, we'll we'll buy them from you. And that was about 1994, by then, 1994, yeah, 94, 95. And I realized that, hmm, cigars are really making an impact. And as I saw that magazine grow, I saw the culture change from the old man culture to everybody smoking, including women, which was very rare in everyday life. You never used to see a woman smoking a cigar. I should say never, but... Very rarely. So at that point, I saw the opportunity that maybe this is a chance for me to get back into the family business that I had been separated from by our family leaving Cuba as a result of the Cuban Revolution and an opportunity to reconnect to the family's heritage that had been lost. So at that point, I said, well, let's I can't do this by myself. My mid 20s. um I would have to ask my father and maybe my uncle, his brother. Uh, maybe they'd be interested. If they were interested in doing this, we could become partners and relaunch our the modern version of what our family used to be. And we will call it Los Blancos Cigar Company. The Blancos being my father, myself, and my uncle. And uh, they pointedly uh, pointed out that, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s, young man. Um, and they said, if you're really serious about this, Then you should uh, uh, invest everything you own and then we'll know you're serious and we'll consider it. So they were basically my bluff. (laughs) They wanted to know because at that point, I knew very little about what it took to be A, in business and B, in the cigar business. Uh, Them knowing what it really took, they looked at each other and said, is he really serious at his age? And I I said, I was. And they said, well, you, you prove it to us. Invest everything you own. And so that's what I did. Uh, all in, you know, like the chips on the on the poker table. And they matched uh, my funds and, and exceeded them in some cases because, of course, I'm much younger than them. And we got this thing off the ground, and we incorporated in 1998 with Los Blanco Cigar Company. Um, we
1: wow. provided
2: the responsibilities. Uh, my father handled uh, legal... Uh, Issues, administrative issues, licensing issues, import, exportation, uh, all types of documentation, uh, contracts, taxes. Um, My my uncle uh, at the time, because we decided to open our own factory, uh, he was in charge of running the facility uh, day to day operations because he was retired at the time. Uh, My father was still working uh, had another job. And I was also working a full-time job. So my job was to sell, market, advertise, design the product. And my passion with the cigars was to blend them, was to make them. Even though I wasn't going to be able to run the day-to-day operation, I was the one that was going to have to sell them. So I wanted to create the product so I could sell it. My desire in learning and the aspect of learning the tobacco industry was not farming. It was not fermentation. It wasn't rolling. My particular expertise was of interest was blending. So that's what I decided to do, and somebody had to do it. Uh, so I did that. I created the blends, designed the packaging, gave it to my uncle Francisco running the factory, the day-to-day operations. We hired rollers. Some of them were cousins that had come out of Cuba. Others were friends of theirs that had also come out of Cuba. And we opened our factory in 1998 in Ybor City, in, 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 which is a the old cigar factory neighborhood in Tampa. Uh don't ask any wow. of that area. So we hit the ground running and that was in nineteen ninety eight.
0: So nineteen ninety eight. So um that's you know that alone is is it's worthy of a of a documentary, uh David. <laughs> it, it's uh I know you live a, a very active life and, and you've done a lot and that's kind of like this the, the prime example that if you plan things and then you um right? If, you, uh, if you're if you consistent and if you respect the tradition, you will succeed in, in many aspects of life since when we talk about you, we see a man of multiple talents and disciplines. Um, Sigar Rican, do you have any
1: questions? Yeah, for David? Um, I'm really interested in knowing the part of the blending because, you know, at this point, you're pretty much like probably, I don't know, maybe... You're in your mid-20s, so at this point, you're probably, like, 10 to 12 years smoking cigars, but how -hmm. did you get to the point of, like, saying, okay, I'm going to be the blender? Like, what do you take into consideration at this point, and uh, what kind of experience you have uh, doing it? Because, you know, you have all the information that your family provides you, but, I mean, in this point, exact point, when you want to start the company, did you actually were blending before, or this is like a new experience for you. And what do you I don't know, like what do you think in in at this point, like this is how I wanna make a cigar, like this is what people are looking for, you know, maybe it's a different year. Like right now, people are looking for stronger cigars. I don't know if in that point that was kind of like the, you know, the hot uh you know merchandise, you know what I mean? Like uh
2: So I was pretty green at the beginning with regard to the manufacturing side. I had been smoking and I understood what it took to make a good cigar with regard to the elements, right? The fillers, usually three to four, binder and wrapper. So um, the cousins that I had had been making cigars in Cuba um, for years before they came to the United States. So I understood how to make the cigar. What I needed to then understand was what each individual element of tobacco brought to the table, like a chef, you know, creating a recipe for anything. You have to taste the elements individually, and then you have to taste the elements together when they combine. So I did a lot of smoking of individual leafs and and tobaccos from around the world, from Nicaragua to Honduras to Sumatra, Ecuador, uh, Mexico, um, Brazil, uh, and and others. Um, but I was individually testing these tobaccos, so it was a trial and error. I had to learn the craft. So once I learned what the individual elements brought, like a chef tasting you know, sugar and different types of spices and things of that nature, you then learn to try to combine them. Now, granted, I was doing this at the beginning in the dark, learning the in the very hard way. I, I didn't have a master to help me for the first couple of years. However... I was able to blend the initial offering of Blanco cigars, which was four different blends with the premier selection uh, initially with one. And then I spread to two within the first year and then I added a third one, the the third year, and then added a Maduro the fourth year. I mean, the, um, the, the end of the third year into the fourth year. So uh, by 2000, I shouldn't say fourth year by the end of 2000. So the first two years, actually, I was able to come up with four blends and I was trying to uh, create a cigar for every niche in the market. So I created a Connecticut shade for a milder smoke. I created a Sumatran blend for a medium smoke and a medium shade wrapper. Uh, I did uh, use a Habano Criollo. Um, and at that time, Criollo was becoming popular. The Criollo 98 in particular. Um, so, But the Criollo was the, fir- the, the third one I used. Since it was popular, I tried blending with that which is a, it's a, like a hybrid. Um, So then um, I then ventured into the Maduro, which I found to be the most difficult because I had very little experience. But unfortunately what happened in 2000, uh, I say unfortunately because it changed the trajectory of the company for, for good and, and for bad. Uh, It was a serious year for the family. My uncle Francisco Uh, who was a uh, 20-year Vietnam veteran, uh, became disabled as a result of his exposure to Agent Orange. And he was diagnosed uh, with multiple sclerosis and then was unable to walk. Two years into the beginning of the company and almost overnight, he started having numbness in his legs, inability to walk, and he couldn't operate at the factory. So we had invested everything we had, into the primarily the factory because that was the the major investment to build something like that. And the man who operated the day-to-day operations could no longer do so. It was at this point we called on our family. My father and Nestor Placencia are cousins. Uh, Nestor Placencia is of huge fame in this industry. He is the largest tobacco grower and cigar manufacturer in Central America. You can't pick your family. I just happened to be very lucky to have him and my father be cousins. He called Frank, uh, or my father called uh, Nestor up and asked if we could move production because Frank, Francisco, we call him Frank for short, could no longer operate the facility. And Nestor agreed, no problem, come on down, we'll take over the production, since we were getting tobacco from them anyway. So in 2000, we closed the factory in Ybor. Uh, Frank for all intents and purposes, uh, left the company. He could no longer function uh, normally in, in, in business, and uh, he had health concerns. And uh, it was just my father and I. And the day-to-day operations of the factory were taken over by the Placentias. So this is where fate interceded. Now, I told you the bad part of what happened in 2000. The good part was that I got to move our production to the Placencia factory, and it was there that I met my mentor. His name was Evelio Oviedo Dominguez. This man was the master blender at the Placencia factory, but in his own right was extremely famous. Anybody in the industry that was in the the production and manufacturing side of cigars knew who he was. Prior to the Cuban Revolution, he was the uh, Cigar Rollers Union president in Cuba. Wow. Wow, yes. He was in charge. He was also the uh, head of quality control and production at the H. Upman factory in Cuba. And he is credited for a gazillion blends in his life. But the best two that he's known for is the Monte Cristo one and Monte Cristo number two. He was the blender. So this man has been around this industry since he was eight years old. Unfortunately, he died in 2009 Uh, But I had a good nine and a half years, almost 10 years with him to learn everything that I could possibly learn and to learn how to continue to develop the process of learning uh, as tobaccos change, as the varietals change, as the regions in which we grow tobacco change. So he gave me the ability to, to, to understand how to adapt as the industry changes and tobaccos change. Never to be afraid to use new tobaccos in different ways from different countries, from different regions, which is the ability that I had at Placencia that you have at very other, very few other factories. Since they're the largest manufacturers and growers of tobacco in Central America, they don't only grow a huge amount, but they also buy a huge amount because the diversity of the different cigars that they make for different companies has that be, you know, the entire gamut of opportunity. So we have 15 16 different countries that we buy material from. So if you're, if the country is growing legitimate premium tobacco, the plus Sensias have the ability to obtain it. So when I walked into that factory with the master and the material, my ability to to progress uh, accelerated. And uh it appeared that I had some natural talent to pick this up uh with the hard work that i you know my dedication to it as you mentioned before my perseverance I really wanted to learn everything I could possibly learn because this was becoming my life it became my full time job I quit my other job this is all I did slept breath
0: so david um i i wanted to i wanted to kind of like make a pause right here because so this is the timeline that we're speaking of but let's rewind right a little bit. And while we have that timeline, there's a parallel timeline that's going on at the same time. Right. We, we know uh, from most of your interviews, articles on the internet, um, your um, other uh, cigar programs that you do live and, 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 you know, all the media that we follow that you not only you are, the CEO and president of the Blanco Cigar Company, but you are also military mm-hmm. commission officer. You, are, you were a deputy, and you were a fa- uh, paramedic or firefighter, Correct. right?
2: When, when I first, uh, in, in, in the mid-90s, I was a deputy sheriff for Cook County, which is Chicago, uh, where I grew up. And I left the sheriff's department and joined the Chicago Fire Department as a fire paramedic and then was promoted to a paramedic officer. And this is when I started the cigar company while I was on the fire department. Now, at 18, I joined the military and then used my GI bill for my education in law enforcement and, and uh, political science and my paramedic uh, medicine license and things of that nature. But what I didn't ever do was leave the active leave the military entirely. I stayed a reservist. So throughout my entire lifetime, up until today even, uh, I remain a, an army reservist um, and that's now over 30 years. So that's the most consistent thing in my life other than in cigars is, is the military. Uh, but as I mentioned, wow. has-
0: Thank you for your service, uh, David. Uh, my wife is also a, mili- a military uh, She's a commission officer in the U S army. Uh, she's active duty. Uh, she's an attorney and uh, she's airborne too. So 82nd airborne. Um, so so we're we're talking about this this timeline now we have another parallel timeline that's going on with your your careers right you went to uh you you also went to college so do you ever so how 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 does the military and and the tobacco community relate because you know there's a lot of history too like uh, a lot of, a lot of history dates back to you know conflicts to military uh, smoking and cigars you know did that connect between let's say the military community law enforcement community um and then what you were doing how, when did you say it started to it started to connect or did it connect? you know since the beginning how i, I would how, say
2: i would say that? that it connected uh, in coinciding with the change in the in the industry, or I should say the culture in the mid nineties with again, cigar aficionado, it didn't touch just the yuppies. It touched all segments and facets of, of, of the communities, whether you were not, you were a blue collar worker, or you were a, uh, a doctor or a lawyer. It became faddish initially. And then after the fad wore away, the ones that really did enjoy it continued to do it, and, and so the overall population of cigar smokers was grown, uh, even after the, even after the fad died. There were still more cigar smokers after than prior, and they came from all walks of life. They came from blue collar smokers uh, to to your professionals, you know, lawyers, doctors. It didn't it didn't really matter. So when I was on the fire department, and I initially had started my company. Um, I was known as the cigar guy because I always had cigars with me, and the firemen would love to buy the cigars that we had. So they had an, an in, you know, a way in uh, to a cigar manufacturer that also was a member of their department. So even from that point, um, I was known as the cigar guy, even though my full-time job was the Chicago Fire Department. Um, so when <laughs> I left, uh, but then another another catastrophe occurred so we we closed our factory in 2000 and went to placentia so we had a good year under our belt and then a year and a half and then 9-11 occurred uh, everybody remembers that in uh in new york and washington dc for that fact in pennsylvania uh being a, a active member of the army reserve and my father at the time also an active member of the army reserve we were all military you know um my father was activated immediately and deployed uh so he handed me the keys and said good luck son you're on your own um I, I might not be back for a year or two you know and so I was left to fend for myself and the entire company was now on my shoulders uh because Frank had left in 2000 now my father leaves towards the end of 2001 and uh I did the best I could, and I did the best I could for another, I don't know, six months, because then I got called. And once I was mobilized and activated, uh, I had to close the doors, simply walk away. The, the world came first, and my service my, had an obligation, and you know they rang the doorbell, and you have to answer. So um, we put our personal and professional lives on pause, civilian lives. And we put our military hats on and uh, proceeded. uh, I was gone for 18 months, my father for two years. We opened the doors back up, uh, what was it, late 2003 into 2004 and um, started on a shoestring because the progress that we had made at that point um, halted. The world continued. The civilian world continued. Um, and we just vanished. We evaporated in, in in a very short period. My father evaporated the day of 9-11, and then I continued to function with the company and no changes for six months, and then when they called me, I was literally gone in two weeks. So in two weeks, the lights turned off from functioning to gone. Uh, it was so abrupt wow. that uh, I I had time to talk to my salesman. At the time, I had Sales uh, reps, uh, as we call them, they're uh, brokers. You know that work for multiple companies and they represent different lines. I had um, a country full of them. Nobody working directly for us is in house. So when I told them that the situation was that we were having to close because of the situation in the world, they wished me the best. were sorry to hear it, and uh, carried on. When my father and I came back. uh, sales had dwindled to almost nothing because when the reps stop representing you in the shops, you kind of fall off the shelf. You need representation on boots on the ground, as they say, in the, in the retail shops. Um, so we kind of fell off the, uh, the shelves. And when I came back to re re, you know, re, reignite the, ind- you know, the company, uh, I found that when I turned to those cigar reps, those brokers, they were like, Hey, we'd love to have you back. However, Uh, You know, we've filled our portfolio with other brands that have come out since you left or other brands that we were interesting since, you know, you fell off the map and uh, we just couldn't leave a space. We need, you know, they, that's how they make their money. So they needed another brand to take my place. So they were unable to take us back. Uh, All of them, as a matter of fact, you know, life moves on, life moves on. So I was back to myself, my father and. Uh, our investment was pretty much devastated the first time with the loss of the factory. We then had two years of dwindling, almost to zero sales, lost, lost most of our customer base because we had no representation, lost all of our representation and couldn't get them back. And at that point, my father turned to me and said, listen, Dave, um, you know, sometimes things weren't meant to be, this was no fault of your own. You know, the world gets in the way sometimes. And circumstances and times, you know, dictate the outcomes of them. some things. And you know, it's nothing to be ashamed of, or you shouldn't feel like you're a failure. It might not, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. There's other things that you can do. I'm, I'm college educated. Uh, you know, I've had experience in other fields. And he said, uh, you know, it's okay if, if we don't do this, if we don't get back to this. I quite frankly told him that I've never quit at anything in my life, and I could not walk away. I just could not walk away. We succeeded despite the issue with the factory, and we succeeded and continued to grow this business and and had a head of steam and a lot of momentum. It was no fault of our own that this occurred. So if I could do it once, I could do it again. Unfortunately, this time was going to be on a shoestring budget because we had already blown our wad the first couple times. So it was up to me to travel the country Reintroduced the brand. People were, you know, we showed up to the trade show, and we had missed a year. And they were like, "We, what happened, you guys? You evaporated. We thought you went out of business. We thought you had money problems, tobacco problems." I said, "Actually, no. Uh, I was in Afghanistan, and my father was in Iraq." And they were like, "Really? Well, thank you very much for your service. I'll take I'll take ten boxes." Wow. <laughs> so. Wow. This put us back on the map, and not with everybody, mind you, with enough to get the momentum to begin to move again. And what it took from that point on was me traveling this country, United States, all over—from Maine to South California, from Washington State to to Puerto Rico—and try to get accounts back. A reintroduce our line reintroduce who we are assure people we were back in business assure you know encourage the relationship because this is industry is built on relationships and and to reignite the passion that, that people had for their our cigars at the time you got to remember boutique brands in 1998 and 2000 we were one of the first there were very few very very few so we were definitely a novelty. Yep. And it was a new concept. So people were still not necessarily sold on smaller brands growing. They were they already had the big names out there, you know, the, the Fuentes, the Padrones. Even Nick Perdomo was relatively larger size back then, you know. So these names, Oliva, yes. was already a relatively well-known name. So back then, these names were the ones that dominated. And there are others. I mean, I'm just mentioning a few. But the boutique brands that you see today everywhere, they didn't exist. There were a handful of us. so
0: yeah, so la- our last episode, we talked about boutique brands, and as soon as you looked up information on the internet, your name came like it was you know right there at the top and uh, And you know, uh, that is something that we love our audience to know, because you know it's nowadays, people who are starting now they will see hundreds of boutique brands. But back then it was something very, very special, you know, and, and it was something, it was hard to be recognized because there was no uh, internet like it is now. There was no marketing, social media marketing like there is now. It, you know, it, it had to be done by flying from state to state like you've done. And, and, you know, not only to state to state, in other countries because we see your cigars in a lot of different countries, Netherlands, um, I know every time you're in a life, people ask you, can, can I get your cigar? And you ask them, where are you, where you're at? And they say in Europe, Oh yeah, just call this store, <laughs> Germany, call that other store. And you know, that, that says a lot, you know, you make these relationships and you make this work I, by yourself. In the
2: beginning. Now, if it wasn't for the Placencia factory, being able to turn on the production and turn it off when I had to, I would have, it would have been devastating. Had I had my own factory still, and we had to close everything. We would not have been able to reopen it. So the fact that the Placencias had taken over the production in 2000 allowed me the ability to walk away and then come back, and the lights never turned off because they were making cigars for other people. So they were just able to reinstitute our blends and our you know and our request for production, and without a hitch, we had cigars again. And without that opportunity, wow. it would have been we would have been.
1: I want to. So David, no, I, I, ha- just, I just wanted okay, to yeah. ask you like, more specifically because I didn't want it to put it like, you know, the Plasencias, let's say you know, they save your life or whatever. But I wanted to ask you, like, if you go back and think how your company will make it without that, you know, that big help of Placentia and also having like Evelio Oviedo Dominguez as your mentor, that was probably, I mean, that was kind of like, like you said that's a game changer you know if you go back like Mm -hmm. if without that access because you put it like a chef you know you got all these uh ingredients that you can use and nobody you know nobody has access to that so probably you know that's something that pretty much helps you know helps I don't know it's like it's pretty much you know without that help it's it's at the table it's yeah the table yeah yeah i mean it's i mean i i recognize that you got this old you know you are persistent but you also have this big help that that you know it's it's like it, it, it's a blessing for for you you know that's a, that's wonderful
2: yeah not, not anybody can walk into the placenta right. factory and and have just about carte blanche with whatever mm-hmm. material you want and at the same time i walked in oh yeah by the way i had one of the most well-regarded and well-known blenders in the world take me under his wing and teach me everything he could. I mean, this, this was a perfect storm and opportunity for me. And, and, and he basically did help me because he saw my passion and that I said that this was what I wanted to do. This was it. I'm not looking to change uh, careers again or anything. I'm interested and want to make cigars period. And here I am, 22 years mm-hmm. later, and plan, and I plan on doing it for the rest of my life, God willing, for as long as He allows me to do so. Um And and I tell people that all the time when they never, you know, guys that are new to the Blanco cigars or they haven't, you're not necessarily familiar with our brand or who we are as a family or our history. I tell them, and they go, "Wow, man, these are really great cigars." I say, "Yeah, I'm a I'm a 22 year." overnight
0: <laughs> overnight <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly so david um you know this is this is great let's talk about let's talk about your cigars you know when when you look up blanco cigars on everyday social media internet you see people holding those cigars i see a lot of people holding the blanco 9 every day on the internet I see people like myself because, because I'm a fan of the above and beyond. Um, I see people uh, right now. I don't know. I, I know this cigar is cigars, not from the moment, but it looks like we're getting more of a trend with the Lanceros. Your Blanco 9 Lancero is everywhere on every article about boutique cigars. Um, and and for me, the experience of... of uh, tasting those cigars and, and, you know, sitting down and looking at the bands of your cigars, this, the story, the history behind it, the flavors, the aromas, like I had that above and beyond. And for me, it says, welcome to Nicaragua. I'm taking a tour with David Blanco in the, in the factory, which I'm dying to, go, to, to do, to to do, hopefully in the future, uh, we'll be able to do that with you. Um, Talk to me about that inspiration from the blends to the people, uh, to the, you know, different cigar reviewers, programs, et cetera, accepting that product. So
2: you mentioned the Blanco 9. So I'll start with that, with the fact that the Lancero in particular, I am a Lancero fan. uh, And I always have been, even when it wasn't very popular. And today is not even the most popular size relative to like a Robusto or a Toro or even a 6x60. For me, because I'm an avid smoker and I smoke, you know, for a living, basically, I prefer more concentrated flavors and and more succinct and precise flavors that come from the wrapper. So for me, a smaller ring gauge cigar provides uh, more wrapper influence because there's just less filler. It's like less water in the Kool-Aid powder, right? More water. The more water you put yeah. in the Kool-Aid powder, the more diluted the f- the flavor of the Kool-Aid is. It becomes watered down. The less water or the less filler in the cigar, the more concentrated and stronger flavors that you can get out of it. So this is why I gravitate towards smaller ring gauges, Coronas, um, Lonsdales, uh, uh, Lanceros, even some Panatelas uh, are, are very good for me because – I enjoy their flavor profile more. You can blend this, use the same blend in larger ring gauges, but sometimes they become watered down. Um, it's just too much filler and it takes away from the wrapper, you know, diameter wise. Uh, that said, the Blanco 9 was also rated number one cigar of the year uh, by consumers on iRobusto, and I believe it was in 2018. Um, and, and for me, being voted by consumers number one cigar of the year was one of the hugest honors I've ever had in my life because, you know, in most magazines that rate and review cigars for cigars of the year, it's usually two or three guys, the editors, you know, stuff like that. And it's just the, the opinion of a couple people, even though it's in the magazine, they don't real, you know, you realize it's only a few people that make that decision when the consumers get to vote over, you know, 60, 70 cigars to choose from. And you get number one, you must be doing something yeah. right. <laughs> so pretty good. Indig- yes, pretty good totally indig- agree. Doing something right. I also got a number two rated cigar of the year with the Blanco Liga Exclusive de Familia with a Pennsylvania Broadleaf Maduro. So I had a Maduro that was also rated a number two by consumers. So uh, the Primos Estate Selection is another one of our lines. When we brought that out in, oh, I think it was 2007 Uh, I believe in 2008, it received one of the best value cigars of the year in cigar aficionado. It's since got some subsequent high ratings as well, but best value cigar of the year is also one of those uh, very highly touted uh, reviews as well. So we've had very good. um, I don't hate to use the word luck because this is not luck. We've had very good uh, outcomes with regard to people reviewing our cigars. The Blanco 9s also received a 95 in CA, a 93 in Smoke Shop, uh, our Smoke Magazine, a 90 in Cigar Snob. Um, So we've, we've had reviews from around the planet and different reviewers. As you mentioned, you were talking about different reviewers that have well received our product. And as a result, it's helped educate the consumers about our product. And with the advent of social media and online sales and things of that nature, It has allowed us to become more global in our ability to reach people, which before, as you mentioned, and I was describing to you in the early days before the huge social media outlets, it was us driving around. You mentioned flying around the United States. I was driving everywhere because as you know, there's a cigar shop everywhere, every town, every county, every state, there's a cigar shop. So for me to fly from one city to another, I would be missing all the shops in between. So we would drive the entire way, a lot of the times myself, and, and just meet people, talk about our cigars, introduce myself, hand them some cigars, hand them my business card, see if I could get them to smoke a cigar with me and see if they'd like to place an order and open up an account and become a retailer with us, or I'd have to follow up. So it was a long, drawn-out process. The development of the relationships is all about what this business is. My father always used to tell me that you can have the best cigar on the planet. And we all say that we know cigars are very subjective, but we can have a cigar that we all believe and Everybody can agree on it. One of the greatest cigars on the planet, but if they don't like you, they're not going to buy it. However, you could have a mediocre cigar, but if everybody loves you, you got a chance. That being, that being said, <laughs> wow. he was trying to illustrate the fact that this is relationship-based. Everything in sales is relationship-based. So uh, I've been able to be around the industry long enough to to realize that he wasn't lying. I've had some very good cigars out there by people's names that I won't mention because it's not the point of the conversation. But the point is, is that they're not successful in business because they are not liked by industry insiders and or people that they just don't like doing business with them. They're pain. They're, they're grumpy or they're just not pleasant people, but they have great cigars, but it hasn't served them because you have to have a relationship as well as a good product. So we try to provide the service, good product, maintain a good relationship. There's a whole host of things. And that includes Europe. I've been in Europe now for, Oh, I think 10 years. That is a very slow market slow wow. market to develop. They don't do business there the way they do in the United States. The first year I was at the trade show in, in Dortmund, Germany, they walked right by me. Like I didn't, there wasn't even there. The next year, they maybe looked out of the corner of their eye and saw me. The third year, they said, man, that guy's here three years <laughs> in a row. Who is he? Or maybe they shook my hand. The fourth year, they would stop. And let, let me see what this is all about, because this guy's been here a while now. So he must be worthy to be here. He, he survived this long. Why is he surviving? He must, maybe he has something worth investigating. By the fifth year, we started breaking the shell, right? So it has been, it, it, uh, Europe is a different animal and persistence in, is how you have to work there because they don't make decisions overnight. Even to this, this day, I, may, I don't have distribution in every country in Europe because some people, it's a very small market. And remember, Cubans are also available, so it's dominated by that. And then there are your native European uh, cigar brands like Davidoff, which is from there. So you also have to compete with something that everybody knows and has been smoking for years. But those that have given us an opportunity, we continue to grow our brands in their markets, whether it's Germany uh, or Holland or uh, Switzerland or you know places like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. Wow. Um, uh, Luxembourg. Um, We're opening up Belgium this year. Uh, France, uh, Andorra. I mean, there are even the little countries. So we continue to grow. We also have some countries in Africa that sell our cigars. We're opening up the Middle East this year. We have countries in Asia that sell our cigars. Malaysia, Vietnam, um, some other countries, I believe, also have our cigars. I think Thailand has our cigars now, Uh, not to mention Canada uh, we have the Caribbean, St. Martin, and of course, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic. We export to the Dominican Republic, okay, if you can believe that. An and I no short wow. of cigars, <laughs> but they want something different. And, to, and Nicaraguan tobacco has become very popular. So we distribute in the Dominican Republic, we distribute uh, a, a, one of our brands in uh, Aruba. Uh, we've also had contact with people. And I used to have somebody in Argentina. We're looking for somebody else right now, but Argentina. So it's a global market for us now. And uh, that would have been impossible uh, if it not had been for the advent of social media because now it's a global community. I talk to people all the time on social media. Those people you say holding my cigars, I talk to them all the time. And they're from all over the world. Awesome.
0: Yes, they are. You can. And You can – I mean, if you guys – um, you know, haven't seen this social media go to uh Blanco Cigars fans on Facebook and look up all the pictures from everybody just posting their cigars, and you'll see people from all over the world smoking Blanco. Uh, now, David, we have four minutes left before it cuts off. I wanted to just touch up really quick on, on one of my favorite products that you have is the above and beyond. Uh, one of the things I want to uh, we're going to be touching a little bit more of detailed information with that cigar on our content and um, in our pages. However, so that flavor of that blend is just fantastic. Is that one of those cigars that in the Dominican Republic people want, because this is so different from everything that I, for example, in my local shop, um that is so different from everything so that I can buy in blend my own a that show. I
2: created to help give back to, uh, it's called Above and Beyond as a brand, and the line is called Heroes. Heroes are the ones that did not make it back. That's in, in serving their country either in the military or in civil service, whether it's police, fire, EMS, lost their life in service. That's what we call the heroes. So we wanted to give back uh, to uh, some nonfor profit organizations that help the families of those fallen heroes, regardless of the uniform they wore. So I wanted to create a cigar that was medium in strength so as to not uh, alienate anybody. So your your mature smokers could appreciate the flavor profile, but it wasn't too strong that your novices still could appreciate it because they wanted to try a cigar, and they also knew that their money was going. We were donating money, and they could participate in uh, in helping. Uh, so it's a medium body cigar with a Habano Rosalo wrapper. It's got a Honduran Nicaraguan filler binder combination lovely exquisite taste profile with a very clean finish and i'm glad that you enjoy it and i hope a lot more people do because not only do you get a good cigar out of but you end up helping some people's families um that are no longer with us that sacrificed for our freedoms uh law and order uh and in some cases to save people's lives as firemen you know uh sometimes also surrender their life in fires and and things of that nature so especially right now with everything that's going on it's a very sensitive topic but uh we try to do our part and give back, and that's part of that selfless service that I learned in the military. I had, I've worn all three hats. I've been in the police department, uh, law enforcement side. I've been in the EMS and fire side, and of course my military career. So I've, I've grown up with those people, and I've got the privilege to serve with heroes, and I, that means I've, I've served with people that are no longer with us, and I wanted to honor their memory and uh, with a cigar and at the same time help their families out not only for the ones i've known but the one have died since and the ones that are continuing to serve and may not make it back in the future i want them to know that their families are there is help for them so that's a cigar very special to our heart
0: thank you david so we have one minute left we're going to say goodbye i think david blanco is uh true uh Oh, he's a man of all traits. He's a true example. I hope one day you get to write a book um, about, you know, all your, of your, pretty much all your life. I think it's been amazing Thank and I it. wish you the very best uh, in the up and coming things that you have with your company. Um, I am going to leave the mic really quick. Right, David, we can, I, and then at the I'm end really today, so we have 40 story,
1: seconds. And I really appreciate uh, your time here with us and, because people are going to be so so thrilled with your story and i don't know i'm i'm really humbled by by your visit to the to our podcast so thank you very much thank you very much
2: thank you thank you very much for having me guys if you guys want to learn more and unfortunately an hour goes very quickly I am been graced on the cover. This is the current issue of Smoke Shop Magazine. I'm on the cover and the featured article. So if you want to learn more about some of the things we talked about and our products, you can check out that current issue as well. It's posted on our Cigar Fans page. Again, Blanco Cigars Fans. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Stay smoked.